Can you thank these guys for leading us in worship? Thank you. <clears throat> Do me a favor and grab a Bible if you can. We've got them in baskets down by your feet. And get with me to John chapter 4. That would be on page 862, page 862 and 863 in the Bibles that we have here. Now, if there were ever a passage of Scripture where I would hear it and roll my eyes, this is the one. Um, I don't know if you've heard this story before. It's the story of the woman at the well. I've heard it so many times that sometimes when I hear a preacher say, okay, here's the story of the woman at the well, I kind of go, okay, here we go again. And uh, having heard it so many times, I think I could probably just recite this thing from memory. And it's funny because this week, I heard it preached twice. This week, I was at a ministry conference early in the week. Preacher got up. Okay, turn with me to John chapter 4. I said, oh boy. Uh, Thursday night, I went to a ministry banquet, and the presenter there was preaching from John chapter 4. So I've heard this over and over again. And, and so this week, I was working on it. And I just want to let you know, as I was thinking through this, and as I was praying my way through this, and trying to have an open mind, this whole thing just came fresh to me again. And what, what's here in John chapter 4 got me excited and, and, and is thrilling, and, and I was super pumped to, to get here and to be able to share it together with you. And it just reminds me, and I need to say this publicly, this book is inexhaustible. This book is inexhaustible, that you can be a Christian for your entire life and become familiar with the Bible and have a habit of reading it with regularity, but, but man, there's always more for you. Isn't there? There's always more that God can, by his spirit, through his word, communicate to you. And so it made me think of St. Augustine, because many of us in here are, have been around for a while, and we've heard this before, but some of us are also new to the faith. And maybe you've never heard the story of the woman at the well, but St. Augustine puts it like this. He says, the Bible is shallow enough for a toddler to wade into, and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And isn't that true, that some of us are brand new to it, and God meets us where we're at? And some of us have been around for a long time doing the Christian thing, reading the Bible, and this morning God is going to allow us to swim in the grace of his goodness. And so let's pray and ask that that would even happen right now. God, would you, by your spirit, take your word and let us hear your voice. God, we want to be people who, having come to church and opened the word, we, we want to know that we've heard from you. And who really cares if a dude up front shares his opinions? But your voice, God, and your desire for us is what we're after. And we pray, God, that you would speak to each of our hearts this morning, knowing that you can, that we come from different backgrounds and different experiences, but you're going to meet each one of us where we're at. And we're thankful, God, that you're going to use this to help us as a church family to live on mission together. And so we commit this time to you, and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to, this is a lengthy text, uh, so I'll just work my way through it as we move along, but there are three, three divisions here, and we see that there's a conversation that happens in verses 1 to 26, but then I also want to show you that the rest of the story is important as well, that there's an explanation that Jesus gives to his disciples, that he takes what happened in that conversation, and he begins to teach and instruct his disciples, what I just did, I expect for you to do as well, and not only them, but us today. And so he explains it, and then we see the application of it. What does it look like when a life is transformed by the power of God's grace? And what do they begin to do? And we see the Samaritan doing that at the end of our story this morning. So let's look at the conversation, and we see the background in verses 1 to 6. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. 
Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So Jesus is gaining notoriety, and one of the things that he does here, he doesn't always do this, but he, he, he departs. He travels away from this place, and he goes back to Galilee, to his home base, and he's going to presumably resume his ministry there. But, but he's traveling, and it tells us that he had to go through Samaria. It's the most direct route to go from Jerusalem to Samaria, and it says he had to go there. The problem is he doesn't have to go there. In fact, that's not normal. The normal thing for people to do if they're Jewish, is to go around Samaria because there's hostility between the Jewish individuals and the Samaritans. You're going to see that in the text. It shows up a couple different times, but there's this hostility. They don't associate with one another. The Jews consider themselves to be the true Israel of God, pure and trying to seek God's will, and they see the Samaritans as a compromised group of individuals who've intermarried, They've uh, diluted their worship experience. They've done some different things. And so there's hostility between the two. And the normal thing to do if you're going from Jerusalem up to Galilee is to go around. So why does it say that Jesus had to go this way? And why does he stop off in this little town, Sychar, to this little well and sit down and interact with this woman? And I think the reason why, and we're meant to see this, is that there's a mission and the mission goes well beyond the bounds of Jerusalem. Jesus has a mission, and it's not just for people who are Israelites, it's for the entire world. And when he goes to Samaria and interacts with this woman, we're meant to see that this is what Jesus has come to do. He is the Savior of the world. And the story just previous to this, in chapter 3, it's the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man, he's named, he's affluent, he's got status, he's a political leader, he's a religious leader, he's an important figure in their community, And he interacts with Jesus, and now directly after that, he goes to to Sychar, he goes to this little town, and he interacts with a woman who's not named, who's not important in the eyes of the world, who doesn't have status and notoriety and affluence and all these other things. And Jesus is meant to, he's showing us something here. He's saying, look, the message of Jesus Christ isn't just for a type of person. It's for all people. It's for whoever would call on his name for salvation. And so we see that there's a mission here. Now, if you're thinking about this, this is very important. There are people in Samaria who would never, ever, ever be able to go to Jerusalem. They would never even think to go to Jerusalem. They would never think to go to the temple of God where the law of God would be read and sacrifices would be made and all these different things and they would experience the name of God. That's not even a possibility for them. So what does that mean? Delegates of Jerusalem have to go to them. Now, here's why this is important. There are people that you and I know who will never, ever show up here on a Sunday morning. It's not even in their mind. It's not even a possibility for them. They're not going to wake up on a Sunday morning and go, hmm, what should I do today? I think I'll go to church at the church that meets at the the high school. It's just not going to happen. So if they're never going to wander in here, no matter how many Facebook promotions we do and events we create, they're never just going to wander in thinking, you know what, this is a great idea. What should we do? Let's go to them. We must go to them. They're not going to show up in here. Let's be the kind of church that says, we'll go to them. We'll meet them where they're at, just like our Savior went and met this woman by the well. Now, Jesus begins to have a conversation with this woman, and what he does here is he shows her 
what the message is really about, what the gospel message really is. And he points out along the way a handful of features about, about the message. And the first one that we find out is that the gospel or the kingdom of God is living water. Jesus begins to explain that coming into a relationship with him is like drinking from a fountain that will satisfy your soul. Let's look at it, starting in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water also, so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So what's he doing here? He's, he's, he's interacting with this woman who's doing kind of her routine. She comes to the well. She has to draw water from the well to have you know, water for the day for all the household chores and cooking and all those sorts of things. And Jesus comes along and he says, Ma'am, would you please draw me some water? And she's put off by this because it's weird that a man would approach a woman in this way and make a request like this, that a Jew would interact with a Samaritan woman. She's kind of like, this is inappropriate. This is unusual. Um, this is, in, in the eyes of your culture, this isn't even clean. I've got a head cold right now. Some of you guys can hear that as I'm talking. And, and it'd be like, you know, you coming up and say, hey, can I have a drink of your water? And I'd be like, well, I'm sick. Like, we just don't do that. We don't share water. In the same way, this woman would be like, this is inappropriate. Like, people don't drink out of the same vessel. If a Samaritan touches this thing, Jews do not touch this thing. So why are you asking me for water? And Jesus begins to turn the conversation from that natural realm of just fetching some water to the real realm behind it, which is their spiritual need. And he begins to talk about there is a water that will, that will quench your thirst. There's a water that if you drink from it, you'll never be thirsty again. And she says, dude, you don't even have a cup. You don't have anything to fetch water. How are you going to give me any water? This well that our father Jacob had given to us, this is a significant well. And Jesus continues to remind her that he is the source of the true water. He begins to point to himself, saying that if you would even ask me, I would give to you living water that would quench your thirst. It's crazy, but it points to that reality that every single person we ever meet is seeking satisfaction. Every single person you ever meet is actually trying to find something in this world that will satisfy their, their soul. And we do it in a variety of different ways. We do it as we you know, try to find something that we can throw our identity into. and We can say, man, if I could get this, then I know that I'd be happy. Then I know that I would be satisfied. Many of us are wounded, much like this woman is wounded. She has been through a, tr- a bunch of traumatic experiences, and now she's trying to find her place in life, and it's very challenging for her. In a society that she's in, as she's married and divorced several times over, as you'll see in a minute, She's trying to figure out, how can I even just provide for myself? 
How can I find a place where I belong? And many of us are cruising through life, every person you ever meet, cruising through life, trying to figure out, how can my soul be satisfied? How can I be happy in this world? The singer from The Greatest Showman, Jenny Lynn, she, she talks about it in that movie. She says, I sometimes feel like I don't belong here. I was born out of wedlock, and it's brought great shame upon my family, and life always has a way of reminding me that I don't deserve a place in this world. And that leaves a hole that no ovation could ever fill. And isn't that telling? Most of us are cruising through life looking for that ovation, looking for that experience where a bunch of people see us and value us and recognize us, and all of a sudden we feel satisfaction. But even the people who achieve the highest level in what they're pursuing, they get there and they go, that's not it. That's not it. That doesn't satisfy my soul. And Jesus keeps pointing to himself and reminding us He is the living water. He is the one who can satisfy our souls. God spoke about this back in Jeremiah in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verse 13, where it says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Here's the problem. Humanity has this tendency. Instead of going to the source and finding satisfaction, we go to every other thing that we can find under under the sun. We go to the well and we dig something. We think, this is going to make me so happy. This is going to be exhilarating and thrilling. And this is going to make me everything that I want to be. And what do we find out? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Those things cannot satisfy, but Jesus points to himself as the living water. Now, one of the things I want to show you here, and it's worth copying, is that Jesus, he's very fluent in the gospel. He's, he's able to talk about spiritual things without being weird about it. I mean, it's a little weird because he's saying, you know, I can give you water that you don't know about. But, but he talks in this way where he draws a conversation into these greater spiritual realities. And I want for us as a church family to become fluent in talking about matters of faith. I want for us to be able to be sitting, standing around the water cooler with coworkers, and we're talking about projects or we're talking about different things, and we just normally begin to speak about the kingdom of heaven. And, and we draw people into that conversation, and they're not put off by it, but we're fluent. I want us to become competent in doing that. Some of us have taken foreign languages, and we learn important words like bathroom, and we learn important words like a greeting, and then we can go to a place and we can say that to people, but we're not fluent in it. Most of us aren't fluent in other languages because we're American, um, but we need to get to the point where we can have a conversation and you can be talking to other people and you feel totally natural and at ease bringing up your faith. Just like Jesus in a normal conversation brings up matters of faith. And I hope that you'll, you'll join me in this. This is an ambition of mine. I want every person who's a part of our church to feel comfortable having spiritual conversations. And I hope that that gets you excited because that's, that's a goal that we have is to help you figure out how you can become more and more competent in talking about matters of faith. So the first thing that Jesus brings up in this conversation, living water that can satisfy. Here's the second thing. He brings up sin. He, he's not, he's not going to leave the conversation there saying, hey, if you come to me, I can make your life better. He also wants to address the reality that is the greater problem. Not just that, they need to be, that people need to be satisfied, but that they need to do something about the fact that they have broken relationship with their maker. And he begins to outline this in verses 16 and following. He told her, she says, this is great. 
give me some of that water. And he says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. And the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Right? She, she, there's this interaction, and Jesus is bringing to the surface her history and her backstory, and we have no reason to believe that he has met her before or knows the, the situation other than the fact that he is God in the flesh and he's aware. But he begins to address this problem that she is facing. It's not just that she needs to find something that would make her happy. It's that she's looking for that happiness in other things. It's, it's what we call sin. And so Jesus addresses sinfulness, and our gospel needs to, to address that as well. As we talk to people, and we're not trying to be rude, and we're not trying to be harsh, and we're not trying to be self-righteous. We're all sinners. But when we talk about the gospel, we need to be aware that the gospel is good news for those who are far from God. Good news for, for those who have broken fellowship with their maker. The gospel is great news for those who are broken and hurting, just like this woman who has been through a traumatic life and we're reminded then there is nobody who is beyond the grace of God. There is nobody in here this morning who has went through stuff that disqualifies you from Jesus' ability to save you. You could have done all kinds of things, all kinds of things that you're ashamed of, all kinds of things that you hide by you know, doing things that other people do in the morning at noontime because you just don't want to see people. You could be hiding from God thinking, I have done so much wrong that I can't imagine that God would love me and have me. But this story reminds us God loves those who are brokenhearted, those who are far from him, those who have immoral and sketchy backgrounds. God loves us. He loves us because he loves us. And he sent his son for that very reason. And so we need to be people who are sharing the good news of the gospel in light of our sinfulness. Richard Phillips puts it like this, while it's true that we can achieve a greater popularity by neglecting to mention sin, we cannot actually bring people to God without confronting this problem. Sin is the problem. And we need to share the good news of what Christ has done in light of the bad news of who we are. And we need to become comfortable doing that. Now, as I think about this, I'm just reminded, I, I need to say it like this. There's stuff that we hide in our lives. There are things that we think we can cover over. Jesus sees it. And he is not unaware of it. He, his, his eyes are searching and he's fully aware of the stuff going on in our lives. And that's exactly the reason why he came. And we might be trying to manage our sin and hide our sin and prevent other people from becoming aware of it, but Jesus has come to deal with those very issues. And that's why he brings it up, and that's why as his ambassadors, we should do the same. Now, this woman, I, I, I think you're a prophet, okay? I can see you're a prophet. You know some things about me. And now the conversation's uncomfortable. He's poking into my stuff. He's looking at my life. He's bringing up stuff I didn't want to talk about. So she tries to evade the conversation. She says, well, okay, you're a prophet, but let me remind you, I'm a Samaritan, and we do worship one way, and you as a Jew do worship another way. This is, this is a dividing line we can't cross. This is a reality that you can't reconcile. You might be a spiritual person, but we're coming at this thing from totally different directions. And Jesus begins to explain to her then what true worship really entails. Look with me at verses 20 and following. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You, this, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. What happens here is she's trying to get the conversation derailed, but Jesus is able to say, what you're ultimately concerned about, how to approach God, God is making a way for you to approach him. This worship issue that you're raising of, you know, do we need to go to, do we need to take a pilgrimage and go to Jerusalem and go to the temple? Or can we worship God at our temple, at the place that we've constructed to meet with God? And Jesus is saying that issue that is very real and very profound. He's saying, I've made it, God has made a way for you to approach the Father. Now, he's pointing to this reality that true worship happens in spirit and, and in truth, but, but the issue of the temple, that's a big deal. And the place that the Israelites had, they were told by God, build it like this, have all of these features, have all of these different activities that go on in there, and this is the place where the name of God resides, where his spirit is, where sacrifices can be made, and where people can gain access to the Father. And, and that's a big deal. It was all instructed by God. And the Samaritans, because they can't go there, they built their own on Mount Gerizim. They built their own temple. And so they're saying, okay, how does this reconcile? How do we actually experience true worship? Because we're so different here. And Jesus is saying, true worship happens at the true temple. You will not have to go to Jerusalem. You will not have to go to Mount Gerizim. There is a day coming, and it has come, when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth at the temple of God. That place in Jerusalem, they were told how to build it because it was supposed to point to the real thing. They were told, make everything according to the plan because this points to the greater tabernacle, the greater temple, the greater reality. And Jesus in the flesh comes and he says, I'm it. You want to worship God? It's through him. You no longer have to travel to a special location and go through special things to experience God. Jesus is the way that human beings can come into the presence of God and worship him in spirit and in truth. And he is the Messiah. The woman's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but there's one coming. Maybe he'll explain it to us. Maybe he'll make it plain. And Jesus says to her, the woman, the one you are speaking to right now, the, you know, you, the one you are speaking, I, the one speaking to you, I'm he. I am. Jesus is hijacking the language that God has used from the beginning of the Bible. The great I am. And Jesus is saying, woman, do you not understand I am. Jesus is saying, I am the God of the Bible. I am the God of the promises. And if you will trust in me and believe in me, you will experience worship. You will worship in spirit and in truth. And so we as a church, we got to get good at this. We got to say, look, we worship Jesus and we don't get too bogged down on all the details of how that all shakes out. What we care about is that we are worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. That we are coming to him and finding in him all that we need. Jesus moves the conversation now to the object of our faith to himself. And he's saying, I am the one speaking to you. I am the great I am. 
Isn't that awesome? So before we move to the explanation, let me just suggest a few different things for our church. Here's the first one. We must, just like Jesus had to go to Samaria, we must take the gospel to unlikely places where we'll share it with unlikely people. We should be a community of faith that gets very excited about our send out. We're going to leave and we're going to scatter this week and we're going to go wherever God wants us to go because we're going to take the gospel to unlikely places and share it with unlikely people. And there's no one who is off limits. We can, God can send us to uh, remote places in the world to do frontier missions or he can send us to our workplace tomorrow morning, but we are sent in the name of Christ to share the message of salvation. So we must take the gospel wherever it is that God sends us. Here's the second thing. We need to grow in our ability to have faith conversations. We need to get more fluency, more ability to talk fluently about our faith. It shouldn't be something we have to memorize. And then we spit out these different things. And then we go, I don't know what else to say. I'm done here. We need to be people who can just naturally, in non-weird, non-mechanical ways, talk about our Savior. And um, I, I could give you a handful of suggestions for that, but I'd love for you to just wrestle with it. What could you do in 2019 to become more fluent in talking about faith? What are some things that you could do to help you gain the ability to talk openly about your faith? Here's the third suggestion, suggestion before we move on, and I just want to put it like this. We as a church family, we want to be people who are sharing the message of salvation. We need to be telling people about the water that satisfies. We need to be telling people about the true temple where people can worship God in spirit and in truth. We need to be telling people about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but we get to do that. And what a joy. So now we move to the explanation. Jesus is going to take that conversation and say, guys, this is what we do. Look with me at verse 27. Just then, conversation ends, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then the woman departs. She pieces out and goes to her hometown. We'll, we'll get back to that in just a moment. But Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples that what he just did, he expects for them to do as well. Look with me at verses 31 and following. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Again, this is one of those kind of bizarre conversations, but Jesus is taking this natural experience. He's hungry. He's thirsty. The disciples go off to town to get lunch. They come back. They say, hey, rabbi, could you, you know, eat something? Regain your strength. And he says, my food, I have food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish that work. What's he suggesting here? He's taking that physical reality of the need to eat, and he's pointing to the greater reality of, this is what will truly satisfy me, doing the work of my Father. This is the thing that will make me gratified, that will make me happy and satisfied in what God is doing. So he's suggesting then that what we need to prioritize is not how we can fill our cupboards and refrigerators and get more money and get more stuff and get full bellies. He's saying this thing of being on mission, this thing of being sent by God, this thing of completing the work that he sent us to do, this is really what we should be, be prioritizing. This is the food. This is the thing that we should be spending our time and energy and resources on. He's saying that great satisfaction will come by aligning your life with the mission of Christ. 
Has that been your experience? Is that even in a, something on your agenda? That you want to align your life to the things of God? Man, we spend so much time telling our kids, and I did student ministry for a decade, so I can speak into this. We tell so, so, so many of our kids, here's the way to eternal happiness. It's you do good in school, and you get an academic uh, scholarship, or you get uh, an athletic scholarship, but you get a scholarship because we can't pay for it. And you go to a great school, and you get a great degree, and then you land a great job, and then you make lots of money, and then, and then, and then, and then you'll be happy. We spend so much time and energy pushing people in that direction of, here's what will satisfy you. We need to be Christians who say, the greatest food, the greatest satisfaction, the greatest thing that we could invest ourselves in is the mission of God. And we will be happy even if our bellies are empty. We will be happy doing the work for which God sent us. Then he talks about the harvest, verses 35 and following. It says, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labors. He's saying there is a task at hand. There's work to be done. And we can, like many churches, say, yeah, four more months, we'll get to that. We got to focus on us. We got to build this thing out. Four more months and then, the har- then it's harvest time. And Jesus says, open your eyes. The harvest is plentiful. The, the fields are ripe for harvest. Other people have sown. You get the opportunity to reap. And, and we all then work together and glorify God. But there is a work to be done. Leon Morris puts it like this. The task is not some insignificant one where it doesn't matter much whether or not it's done. Jesus is talking about work in a field where the eternal welfare of people is at stake. Is there anything that we could be giving ourselves to that feels more important than that? As a church, couldn't we be the kind of church that every week deploys its people to go in the name of Christ and tell people the good news of salvation? Shouldn't we recognize there is a harvest field in our backyard? There are people within shouting distance from us right now who do not know the name of Jesus. And we want to be the kind of church that brings that name to them and has conversations and invites them to experience that deep satisfaction that he can give. There's an incredible work to be done, and I hope you'll join me in it. I hope you will be eager to get about this work and recognize the benefits of doing it. All right, finally, I want to show you the application. So he's telling his disciples, here's a gospel message. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how it works when it happens. If the mission is to the ends of the earth, it is. And if the disciples are expected to participate, then it follows that ordinary believers are called to get in on the action. Here's how it works. The, the woman at the well, she pieces out, leaves her jar behind, and gets after it. Look with me at verses 28 and following. It says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. She goes and she begins to testify about Jesus. She is not questioning, like, I'm not sure if he is or not. She's asking a very provocative question. She knows him to be the Messiah. She has believed his word and has experienced his goodness. And now she's saying, hey guys, come and see. Could this be the Messiah? Would you consider that this man 
is the Messiah of God, the Savior of the world. And they begin to come. And we see that in verses 39 and following. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, and many, because of his words many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you've said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Isn't this incredible? This means that there is nobody that the grace of God cannot visit today. You can have a train wreck of a life behind you where you're just here trying to hide that from other people. And that grace of God can come and radically transform your life. And simultaneously, God can commission you to go tell other people. Right? She doesn't have to go through an evangelistic training program or get vetted by the church or anything like that. What, what does she do? She just leaves her water jar and says, I'm going to go tell as many people as possible about this Savior. I'm going to testify of what I just experienced. You can do that today. You can leave from here knowing the grace of God, having a willingness then to go and share with other people. That's exactly what she does. Because of her testimony, many people come to see this person, Jesus Christ, and on account of her, many people come to, to saving faith. We don't believe just because of your testimony. We believe that he is the savior of the world. Guys, we get this privilege of joining the disciples and joining this Samaritan woman and joining the host of all those who've gone before us, testifying about our savior, the savior of the world. What a joy. Let's pray. God, would you help us to believe what you've, what you've said to us today? And I know in here there are people who've never experienced you as the satisfaction for their soul. They've never believed on you for salvation. They've never even thought of you really as the, the thing that their heart is really longing for. So in this moment, God, we believe that people could place their faith in you and experience salvation right now. And I ask that that would happen. But God, as a church, we want to be the kind of church that doesn't just hear that and, and just keep it to ourselves and sing about that and kind of gather together and then, and then when we depart, we don't tell anyone about it. What, that, that just seems crazy. God, would you help us and inspire us to go out from here, to go wherever you send us and to make known the name of our Savior. Help us to be the kind of church that is on mission and finding satisfaction and finding fulfillment in that mission. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.